Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 107, Harvard's Thanksgiving Day Riot and the best of our featured historic sites. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. There's one thing that's certain in Boston history, that there's a riot for every season. It's Thanksgiving week, so this week we're going to discuss a riot that took place at Harvard University. Not during the tumultuous anti-war protests of the 1960s or 70s, but on Thanksgiving Day in 1787. There's tantalizingly little in the historical record about what happened or how it started, but we know that some very famous historical figures were part of it, and there is solid documentary evidence about what happened after. But before we talk about Harvard's Thanksgiving Day riot, we want to talk about a change we're making to the format of the show. Almost exactly one year ago, we changed things up by switching from a segment featuring historical anniversaries for each day in the upcoming week to featuring a local historic site in each episode. It's been a lot of fun to visit and read about all these local museums and historic houses and cemeteries and memorials, but as you can probably tell, it's starting to feel a little bit stale. We find ourselves increasingly often scrambling to come up with a historic site at the last minute, and we usually just copy and paste some of the promotional material from the organization's website. We've decided to end the featured historic site of the week segment. Starting next week, we'll have a segment that we're tentatively calling... Boston Book Club. Each week, we'll briefly discuss a resource related to local history that we've used and enjoyed. Despite the name, it won't always be a book. We might share articles, podcasts, or even movies. Stay tuned for that next week, and in the meantime, we're going to play some of our favorite historic sites of the week after the fairly short story of the Thanksgiving riot at Harvard. But before we talk about the Harvard riot, it's time for our upcoming event this week, a visit with Louisa May Alcott, Living History Performance with Jan Turnquist at Old South Meeting House. Per the event description, Louisa May Alcott was one of many literary greats who stepped forward in the late 19th century to support Old South Meeting House's fundraising efforts after its narrow escape from demolition and during its first years as an independent nonprofit organization. On the evening of the Little Women's Scribe's 186th birthday, Join us at the Meeting House for a captivating living history experience that will bring you behind-the-scenes stories from Alcott's life, from her unconventional upbringing in poverty to the family love that inspired her to write an American classic. This interactive show is presented by the director of Orchard House, the Alcott family's historic home in Concord, and will be enjoyed by ages 6 to 106. From young readers to Alcott scholars, to First Lady Laura Bush, audiences of every stripe have acclaimed Jan's performances. The program is made possible with support from the Lowell Institute. The event will take place at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, November 28th. Doors open at 6.30 and light refreshments will be served. The event is free, but registration is required. We'll share a link in our show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. A few weeks ago, I was getting myself into the Thanksgiving spirit, and at the same time, I was idly browsing through the Mass Historical Society's online Adams papers. As I tend to do. Since the holiday was on my mind, I did a word search for the word Thanksgiving, and turned up a diary entry by John Quincy Adams from February 1st, 1788. I had with Mr. Shaw some conversation upon the subject of the disorders which happened at college in the course of the last quarter. 
His fears for my brothers are greater than mine. I am persuaded that Charles did not deserve the suspicions which were raised against him, and I have great hopes that his future conduct will convince the governors of the university that he was innocent. A footnote in the collection indicated that on Thanksgiving Day, November 29, 1787, there had been some sort of disturbance in the Harvard Dining Hall after dinner. Soon, I found a letter from Elizabeth Smith Shaw to Mary Smith Cranch, which is to say from one of Abigail Smith Adams' sisters to another, from later in February 1788 that mentions the family's troubles. I long to hear from Charles and Thomas. I charged them to write me. I do not know that Mr. Shaw and I could have given them better advice if they had been our own sons. I hope they will conduct agreeable to it and be wiser than they have been and more cautious of abusing government for what they from choice suffer, the ten shillings penalty, I mean. So both Charles and Thomas Adams, sons of John Adams and brothers of John Quincy Adams, had been involved in, well, whatever it is that had happened on Thanksgiving. Another student, Pitt Clark, who was a sophomore at the time, kept a diary of his Harvard years. According to his entry from November 29, 1787, everything that happened at Thanksgiving dinner seems completely normal and above board. Thursday 29th, Thanksgiving. Very pleasant. Went to meeting. Mr. Hilliard preached from Psalms 107, verses 31 and 32. After meeting, had an elegant dinner in the hall. Each one carried in a bottle of wine and all joined in drinking toasts and singing songs in praise of the day and with thankful hearts. That all sounds very prim and proper, but boozed up college kids in 1787 had a lot in common with college kids today. Maybe Pitt Clark left a few things out of his diary, or maybe he left the dining hall early. But before long, those songs of praise and thankful hearts gave way to drunken rowdiness and destruction of university property. The next week, a meeting was called at Harvard where the president, the professors, and the tutors of the school spent three days considering how to react to the disturbance. The minutes of the meeting describe what happened after Clark's account leaves off. It appeared that a number of the students who dined in the hall on the 29th, being the day of public thanksgiving, were, after dinner, extremely disorderly and riotous, making tumultuous and indecent noises, breaking the windows of the hall, throwing the benches out of the windows into the yard, etc., which conduct was greatly to the damage and dishonor of the college. Having established the facts, at least the facts as far as the college was concerned, the administration moved on to the topic of punishment. Interestingly, the standard of innocent until proven guilty did not seem to apply before the court of Harvard College. The minutes list a veritable who's who of prominent New England families. Proctors, Coffins, Warrens, Ingalls, Pierponts, Gardners, and Emersons. Then it lays out the punishment that the scions of these famous families would face, saying, all of the above company who did not prove themselves to have left the hall before the riotous proceedings shall be charged in their quarterly bill to repair the damages done in the hall. Among these famous families was a senior referred to as Adams Second, and a junior who went by Adams Third. That would be Charles and Thomas, as John Quincy, who was Adams First, had already graduated by that point. Also among the list of the punished was Pitt Clark. The Harvard administration met on December 5th, 7th, and 8th. 
On Saturday, December 8th, Clark wrote in his diary, Fair and pleasant for the season. After prayers declaimed in the chapel, A.M. read French to our French instructor. Very unexpectedly received from the president and the rest of the government an unjust pecuniary punishment, together with a number of my classmates, for being in the hall at Thanksgiving Day a little while after supper. This pecuniary punishment was ten shillings, as noted in the letter from Elizabeth Shaw and further confirmed in the minutes of the administration meeting. Voted that all who are assessed to repair the damages done in the hall be punished by pecuniary fine ten shillings each. Students who dined in the hall, but who left it before disorders arose to a great height, were accepted by the government from the assessment for repairing the damages. Charles Adams, along with three classmates, was singled out for additional punishment. It's not clear whether he participated in the disorderly and riotous events or not. John Quincy said that he didn't think so in a letter to his cousin Cotton Tufts that February. The riotous, ungovernable spirit which appeared among the students at the university in the course of the last quarter gave me great anxiety, particularly as I understood that one of my brothers was suspected of having been active in exciting disturbances. But from his own declarations, and from the opinion I have of his disposition, I hoped those suspicions were without foundation. I converse with him largely upon the subject, and hope his conduct in the future will be such as to remove every unfavorable impression. However, with the benefit of historical hindsight, we know that Charles Adams would struggle with alcoholism for most of his life, and eventually die from cirrhosis of the liver when he was just 30 years old. It's certainly not beyond the realm of possibility to think that he already had a taste for wine at the age of 17. His parents were out of the country, and he might very well have gone along with a rowdy crowd. The college administration knew that he'd been in the room because he worked as a waiter in the dining hall. Whether or not he'd actively participated in the disorderly and riotous behavior with his classmates, he was expected to inform on anyone who had. Young Charles, however, lived up to the ancient code of the Harvard student. Snitches get stitches. So the administration voted that Adams, Churchill, Emerson, and Waterman, who were waiters, but upon examination did not give such evidence concerning the disorders as the governors were convinced they might have given, be dismissed from their waiterships. Pitt Clark records an attempt at an appeal of their sentence the following Monday. Monday, December 10th. I, together with those who were punished, went to the president to know the justness of it and to desire him to take it off. He promised us another hearing. There was nothing else in his diary about a second hearing. Either it never happened, or the result wasn't worth taking note of. Clark's Harvard diary runs through 1791, and each year's Thanksgiving is noted as uneventful. The biggest news is attending meeting at a new meeting house in Medfield. The riot seems to have been quickly forgotten by the college, and it may have never been widely known outside the Harvard community, but it cast a long shadow within the Adams family. John Quincy and his mother certainly thought differently of Charles, and to a lesser degree, Thomas, after the riot, and they continued to be concerned about Charles's character for months or years afterward. Eighteen months after the disturbance, John Quincy wrote to his cousin William Cranch in May of 1789 that, 
I am exceedingly gratified that your fraternal advice was given to Mr. Charles, and I flatter myself that it will, with that of his other friends, have a very salutary effect. The disorders at our university gave me much pain, and more especially on finding that my young friend was suspected to be deeply concerned in them. Indeed, I had never felt so much anxiety with respect to him, as some imprudencies, at least, had given countenance to suspicion, that if well-grounded, would have deprived him of that reputation which he enjoyed before, and which had given me a pleasure, that I had often announced to his dear parents, and from which they had derived no small satisfaction. That same month, Abigail wrote to John Quincy, asking him to keep a close eye on his younger brothers. I must request you in my absence to attend to your brother Tom, to watch over his conduct and prevent, by your advice and kind admonitions, his falling a prey to vicious company. At present, he seems desirous of pursuing his studies, preserving a character, and avoiding dissipation. But no youth is secure whilst temptations surround him, and no age of life but is influenced by habits and example, even when they think their character is formed. I have many anxious hours for Charles, and not the fewer, for the new scene of his life into which he is going, though I think it will be of great service to have him with his father. The new scene of Charles's life that Abigail referred to was a move to New York City. At the time, it was the capital of the young United States, and moving there meant that the new graduate would be under his father the vice president's watchful eye. He was meant to study law under a successful but now mostly forgotten attorney named Alexander Hamilton. But then Hamilton was nominated to President Washington's cabinet, and Charles Adams studied under a different attorney instead. While everyone had high hopes, members of the Adams family didn't have any illusions that being near John would necessarily inspire Charles to mend his ways. A letter to Abigail from her sister Mary alludes to the ignoble fate that would eventually befall Charles Adams some 13 years after the Thanksgiving riot at Harvard. My dear Charles will, I hope, guard against every temptation to evil. Tell him that I love him with an affection little short of what I feel for my own son. Tell him also, if you please, that as he has his companions now to choose anew, that I conjure him by all that is sacred as he values his reputation among the virtuous and worthy of mankind, as he would not embitter the declining years of his parents and wound the hearts of his friends, to be careful who he admits to call him their friend and associate. With that cheerful Thanksgiving story, it's time to close out our featured historic site segment by looking back on a few of our favorites. First up is the Royal House and Slave Quarters, a site which we enjoy for its honest and evolving portrayal of slavery in Massachusetts. For our featured historic site this week, we're going to turn to Medford. Our story begins in 1732 when Medford, like Somerville, was still a part of the independent town of Charlestown. That year, Isaac Royal Sr. bought a large tract of land along the Mystic River in Charlestown and proceeded to spend the next five years renovating and expanding the modest brick farmhouse into what a traveler in the 1750s would describe as a fine country seat, being one of the grandest in North America. Along with the manor house, there were stables and carriage houses, barns and storage buildings for the farm, and a summer kitchen meant to keep the large fireplaces and ovens from making the main house uncomfortably hot during the warmer months. 
Royal was a wealthy Caribbean planter from the island of Antigua, having made his fortune in manufacturing rum and buying and selling slaves. When he moved to New England, he brought the trappings of his lifestyle in the Caribbean with him, including the enslaved Africans who would run his farm and household. When he first arrived, Royal brought 27 slaves with him from Antigua, making him one of the largest slaveholders in Massachusetts. The building that contained the summer kitchen is preserved, and it's often described as the last surviving slave quarters in the Northeast. Now, this description is a little bit misleading, as you'll learn if you take a tour of the house and slave quarters. The building that housed the summer kitchen was also used as a workshop for the many activities that the enslaved workers pursued to enable the royals to live in luxury, and it might have been used as a laundry. Yes, the enslaved people of the estate slept in the kitchen and workshops, but they would have also slept in the kitchen and workrooms in the manor house and possibly even in the barns. Slaves at the royal house, as with many families who owned slaves in New England, were expected to sleep in whatever space they labored in simply rolling up their bedding and tucking it away when it was time to get to work in the morning. Isaac Royal Sr. died in 1739, just a few years after moving his family into their new, slave-supported home. Isaac Jr. inherited the farm and at least 18 people who were enslaved there. Jr. was widely recognized as one of the most wealthy residents of Massachusetts, flaunting his riches by commissioning paintings, funding a new law school at Harvard, and riding around in a fancy coach attended by a team of enslaved coachmen in splendid matching uniforms. The good times couldn't keep rolling on forever. Isaac Jr. held a number of positions within the Loyalist government in the years immediately before the Revolutionary War, including serving on the Governor's Council through 1774. While some historians believe he sympathized with the Patriots, he fled Medford among the rising tensions three days before war broke out at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. The family went first to Boston, then sailed to Halifax, before eventually settling in England. The family still owned about a dozen enslaved people at that time, and they were de facto freed when the royals left them behind. The Massachusetts legislature seized the house, and the Continental Army used it during the siege of Boston. Isaac was officially banished from Massachusetts for life as a loyalist, but in 1806, the state of Massachusetts returned the house to his granddaughter and heir, who sold it. The house passed through the hands of a decreasingly wealthy series of owners throughout the 19th century, becoming more and more run down until it was finally purchased and opened as a museum in 1908. If you visit, you'll find recreations of the lavish furnishings of Isaac Jr.'s time, as well as original and reproduction portraits of the royal family by John Singleton Copley. In the slave quarters, you'll find a large collection of artifacts that were unearthed during excavations between 1999 and 2001. These archaeological finds are presented to spotlight the daily life and experiences of the men and women who were once enslaved there. Since the mid-2000s, the mission and interpretation of the royal house has changed to focus on the lives of the enslaved rather than the enslavers. The result is a historical narrative unlike any I've experienced at any other historic sites that are tied to slavery. The Royal House and Slave Quarters will open for their 2018 season in May, with tours every weekend. It's located at 15 George Street in Medford, with free on-street parking. Or you can take the 96 bus from Harvard Square. 
Next up is Dogtown and the Babson Boulders on Cape Ann, a place that had been on our bucket list for years before we ventured north to explore this unusual site. You may be tempted to wait until spring, but this walk is best done with the foliage off the trees to make it easier to spot the boulders. For our featured historic site this week, we're going to send you a little further out of Boston than we usually would, up to Cape Ann, where you can check out Dogtown Common and the Babson Boulders. Dogtown and the Babson Boulders are two different historical attractions, separated by about 250 years, but connected by one man, located in the same spot in the woods along the Gloucester-Rockport town line. We were just there last weekend, and we thought many of you might like it too. When you get parked, check your map and start hiking. You will come to the remains of Dogtown Common first. Dogtown came first historically as well. It was a village that was first just called the Common Settlement. Families began building homes on what had previously been part of Gloucester's common grazing land in the mid-1600s. A schoolmaster named Thomas Riggs built a house there in 1661, and a blacksmith named James Allen had moved in by 1674. In the early days of the colony, this inland location was seen as a safe place to settle because it was out of the reach of pirates who might raid a coastal village or the feared French fleet. By the mid-1700s, the population of Dogtown peaked at about 100 families. During and after the American War for Independence, the population began to wane as men went off to war and never came back, and other families left to seek their fortunes. The War of 1812 put a final nail in the village's coffin. After the British were defeated, there was no longer a threat from the sea. The port of Gloucester was booming, and Dogtown was left behind, with no harbor to engage in fishing or trade, and even bypassed by the new roads that followed the coast to Gloucester. The population fell off dramatically as families went in search of better prospects near Gloucester Harbor or farther afield. As the village became mostly abandoned, rumors circulated about the handful of women who remained in Dogtown. Though many were, in fact, war widows, they were rumored to be witches and prostitutes. By 1815, there were only six houses left standing, and by 1830, the last residents had departed. The feral dogs they left behind inspired the name that the area is known by today. Today, Dogtown is a ghost town. As you follow the former main roads of the village that have now become trails, you'll see small rectangular depressions, some outlined in stone, in the woods near the road. These foundation holes are all that's left of Dogtown. Most foundations are marked by a large stone with a number carved into its face. It's pretty easy to look those numbers up and correlate the house site you're looking at with the family that used to live there. The numbers are the work of Roger Babson. Babson was an eccentric millionaire who had grown up in Gloucester and whose ancestors lived in Dogtown in its heyday. In 1927, Roger and his cousin Gustavus Babson bought 1,150 acres of what was once the common settlement, and in 1929, Roger moved into a tiny log cabin not far from where his ancestors had lived. A Boston Sunday Post headline said, Boston Millionaire Deserts Civilization to Live with Birds in Wilderness of Witches and Pirates. Roger Babson spent his time mapping and cataloging the old cellar holes he discovered on his property, and correlating them with the families described in his grandfather John J. Babson's 1860 history of Gloucester. 
When he felt he had conclusively identified a home site, he would hire a mason to carve a number into a large piece of granite to mark the spot. In 1936, he published a tourist guide to Cape Ann, in which he shared a map of Dogtown and the house sites he had mapped out, a lengthy description of each one, and a key to the numbered cellar holes. With the key was a note. Other cellars will be found, but all are not numbered because the owner is not known. An identifying number is cut into a granite boulder near each cellar to help visitors find the cellars and hence follow the trip outlined herein. Those identifying numbers weren't the only thing that Babson hired somebody to carve into the rocks around Dogtown. He hired unemployed stonecutters to carve inspirational sayings into the giant glacial boulders that littered the property. At the time, Dogtown was still open pasture land, so these inscribed stones must have stood out from a distance. Today, a mature forest has grown up around the boulders, so as you're walking through the woods, you might catch a glimpse of a large rock through the foliage and say to yourself, Is that writing on that boulder? Am I seeing things? When you move closer, you'll see 12-inch letters cut into the sheer faces of the boulders, usually traced with black paint to increase the contrast. The inspirational sayings that Roger Babson chose reveal a lot about the mindset of a millionaire who considered himself a self-made man. Never try, never win. Keep out of debt. If work stops, values decay. Prosperity follows service. And, of course, spiritual power. Spiritual power. Roger Babson was proud of this work, saying in his autobiography, Another thing I have been doing, which I hope will be carried on after my death, is the carving of mottos on the boulders at Dogtown. My family says that I am defacing the boulders and disgracing the family with these inscriptions, but the work gives me a lot of satisfaction, fresh air, exercise, and sunshine. I am really trying to write a simple book with words carved in stone instead of on printed paper. His family weren't the only ones who thought Babson's boulders were a bad idea. The painter Marsden Hartley called them an intervention of the worst sort. And after Babson's masons accidentally carved a saying on a boulder on Leela Webster Adams's adjacent land, she went to the press and said, Just look at that horrible thing. Just look at it. Why the idea of a man like Roger Babson, so well-known and popular, going about carving such things as prosperity follows service, keep out of debt, if work stops, values decay. Whoever heard of such foolish notions? I think it's safe to say that she wasn't a fan. The boulders weren't Babson's only eccentricity, and they weren't the only stones that he carved inscriptions into. Along with founding Babson College, Roger Babson also started a group called the Gravity Research Foundation. After his sister drowned as a child, Babson regarded gravity as enemy number one and funded research into anti-gravity devices. At over 20 universities around the country, granite slabs remind present and future students about the foundation's important work. The one at Tufts University in Medford says, This monument has been erected by the Gravity Research Foundation, Roger W. Babson, founder. It is to remind students of the blessings forthcoming when a semi-insulator is discovered in order to harness gravity as a free power and reduce airplane accidents. 
A similar slab at Eastern Nazarene in Quincy says that it is to remind students of the blessings forthcoming when science determines what gravity is, how it works, and how it may be controlled. Just a few short years after he bought the land around Dogtown Common, Babson sold it back to the town of Gloucester so that they could construct a reservoir on it. He sold it to them for a pittance, with the condition that the remainder of the land be kept forever open as a public park. Babson's foresight benefits you today if you make the drive to Gloucester and explore the remnants of a 17th century ghost town and a monument to a 20th century millionaire's strange compulsions. We'll post a trail map, Babson's own 1936 tourist guide, and photos from our recent expedition in the show notes this week. Next up is Castle Island, truly a must-do for any Boston history buff. You'll want to save this one for a summer day when you can tour the fort and brave the line for a lobster roll at Sully's. For our featured historic site this week, we're visiting an old favorite in Southie. Castle Island is a landmark for anyone approaching Boston by air or sea, and it's a favorite destination for swimmers, sunbathers, and windsurfers during the warmer months. All year long, the causeway that wraps around Castle Island and the adjoining Pleasure Bay is crowded with runners, cyclists, rollerbladers, and strollers, both kinds, as people enjoy the salt air and a million-dollar view of the harbor. With all that fun in the sun, it's easy to lose track of how important Castle Island is to the history of Boston. To imagine the importance of Castle Island in Boston history, one first has to imagine the geography of Boston Harbor in the early days. Today, Castle Island is no longer actually an island, as landmaking has connected it to the mainland and completely reshaped the coastline of Boston. When John Winthrop and his Puritan settlers arrived in 1630, much of what's now Boston was an archipelago. Castle Island was one of the smaller islands, but it stood right on the mouth of the Inner Harbor, along the only navigable shipping channel. The fledgling Massachusetts Bay Colony felt very isolated, with a powerful colony belonging to the hostile French to the north, and the potentially hostile Dutch New Amsterdam to the south, separating them from the English settlements in Virginia. To protect the town of Boston from an attack by the powerful French, Dutch, or even Spanish fleets that controlled the Atlantic, Governor John Winthrop funded the construction of a rudimentary fort on the island in 1634. The first fort on the site had mud walls coated with a primitive cement made of lime extracted from burnt oyster shells. A handful of cannons were mounted to defend the harbor against any attack from the sea. Despite this humble construction, the fort was soon nicknamed the Castle, an appellation that has stuck for almost 400 years now. Soon after it was completed, the castle fell into disrepair. In the mid-1640s, it was rebuilt with 10-foot-thick walls made of stone and timber and backfilled with earth. This marked the beginning of a 200-year cycle of neglect and repair that continued until after the U.S. Civil War. The fort was rebuilt and expanded in the 1670s after a fire, and it briefly served to imprison the royal governor Edmund Andros after the Massachusetts militia staged a coup and deposed him in 1689. You can hear that story in Hub History, Episode 6. The fort was rebuilt again in 1692, and at that point it was officially named Castle William after William of Orange took the English throne in the Glorious Revolution. Castle William was expanded at the turn of the 18th century, 
then again in the 1740s, making it capable of mounting 120 guns. By the time tensions began to rise between colonists and royal officials in the 1760s and 70s, Castle William was a visible symbol of British civil and military power in Boston. During the Stamp Act crisis, royal officials from customs agents to Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson would take refuge at Castle William when riots and mob violence broke out in Boston. A few years later, after the Boston Massacre in 1770, the people of Boston demanded that all British troops be withdrawn from the town of Boston to Castle William. Officials resisted the move, but there was a real danger that the full fury of the Boston mob would be unleashed on any troops who remained in town. Lieutenant Governor Andrew Oliver had witnessed the power of the mob in 1765 when his home and office were destroyed, and he was forced to resign his position as Stamp Act Commissioner. Oliver wrote that if the soldiers stayed in Boston, that they would probably be destroyed by the people, should it be called rebellion, should it incur the loss of our charter, or be the consequence what it would. When these simmering tensions erupted into open warfare with the battles at Lexington and Concord in April 1775, Castle William became an important stronghold in the British defense against the Patriot forces who laid siege to Boston. According to the Massachusetts Historical Society, only once in nearly 375 years were the guns mounted at Castle Island fired in anger. On March 20, 1776, near the end of the siege of Boston, the British garrison opened fire on a rebel work party on Dorchester Point. Unfortunately, the Americans were out of range, and one British cannon exploded, wounding seven of their own soldiers. When the British began evacuating Boston on March 17, 1776, they recognized the value of the asset they were leaving behind. Instead of allowing the castle to fall into Patriot hands, they laid explosives and set fires on March 20th, destroying as much of the fort as they could. The Patriots were no dummies, and they also recognized the fort's strategic position, so they immediately began building a new fortification on the site. This incarnation of the fort was designed by Chief Engineer Richard Gridley, officially named Fort Adams, and the garrison was officially commanded by Colonel Paul Revere. During the administration of President John Adams, the fort was officially renamed Fort Independence, perhaps because John Adams was embarrassed to have a fort named after him. A few years later, at the turn of the 19th century, you guessed it, the fort was expanded and reconstructed yet again. By the end of the War of 1812, however, the fort was basically abandoned. After two decades of neglect and disrepair, construction of the current fort began in 1833 the U.S. government was implementing a coordinated system of coastal defense forts that would stretch from the Penobscot River in Maine to Key West, around the Gulf of Mexico, and up the Pacific coast to San Francisco. This revised Fort Independence was built out of Rockport granite with walls 30 feet tall and over 5 feet thick. It mounted 96 massive guns, many of which could hit a target over 3 miles away. Though the fort was garrisoned throughout the Civil War and used as a training camp for soldiers who would fight in the South, the fort never saw action. By the 1850s, the defense role of Fort Independence had mostly been taken over by the larger, more heavily armed Fort Warren on George's Island, while the more powerful guns and steam-powered, ironclad ships developed during the Civil War rendered stone forts obsolete. During the 1890s, the city began filling the salt marsh between Castle Island and South Boston, with the goal of creating a broad parkway that would connect to a series of parks around the fort. 
the U.S. government turned the fort over to the city of Boston, though it did briefly reactivate the fort for service in the Spanish-American War and both world wars. Most recently, it served as a station where departing Navy ships would have their hulls partially demagnetized before leaving the harbor to make them harder for enemy ships to detect. Today, Castle Island is administered by the Department of Conservation and Recreation. You can get to Castle Island by taking the 7 bus to Marine Park along Farragut Avenue in South Boston, then walking across the park and along the water. There's also parking available at the fort and along Day Boulevard, but it fills up quickly on nice spring and summer days. Free tours of the fort are available at 6 p.m. on Thursdays, as well as every half hour from noon to 3.30 on Saturday and Sunday. While you're there, be sure to visit Sully's for a hot dog or lobster roll. Their late February season opening is always a hopeful sign of the coming spring for Bostonians. As Sully's enters its 67th season, this local institution is in a more solid and substantial structure than the tiny concession stand that first opened in 1951. Their current building was built in 1986 of sturdy brick and is meant to mimic the officers' quarters that once flanked Fort Independence. The line is often long, but it's worth it for some hot, greasy food, followed by a generous portion of soft serve. Lastly, we recommend the Back Bay's Gibson House Museum, a fully furnished Victorian row house that gives you a thorough look into the lives of both residents and servants. The Gibson House Museum is located on Beacon Street in the Back Bay, just a block from the public garden and the tourist magnet that is the Cheers Bar. Despite its premium location, it's very easy to miss as you walk down Beacon. It's a stone and brick townhouse, and it appears to be completely ordinary for a fine Back Bay brownstone. A small red sign with gold letters identifies it as a museum, but otherwise it seems unremarkable. When you step through the heavy walnut double doors, you walk backwards in time. Absolutely nothing in the house has been touched since 1954, and very little has changed at all since the house was originally built in 1860. The tidal back bay was dammed to provide water power to mills in 1821. After decades of little success, the city, state, and the Boston Water Power Company eventually entered into an agreement to fill in the stagnant mill pond and create a lavish new neighborhood. Contractors began bringing in sand and gravel from the suburban Charles and Deposit River Valleys in 1857. The project would continue until the turn of the 20th century. The house at 137 Beacon was only the second home to be built after development began on the first filled blocks. A wealthy widow named Catherine Hammond Gibson took a risk and became one of the early pioneers in what would become a very common migration for Boston's Brahmin class. Gibson lived at the top of Beacon Hill with her family, bought a Back Bay building lot for $3,696 at auction, and was one of the first to make the move. That pattern of wealthy Brahmin families moving from Beacon Hill to the Back Bay became so typical that it even forms part of the backstory for the 1990s TV series, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Didn't you love father? Of course I loved your father. But I had to choose from a, a small selection of men at a very specific time in my life. And it was Beacon Hill to Back Bay, not Boston, to Colorado. Catherine Gibson built the grand home on Beacon Street in hopes that it would help her son Charles Hammond Gibson find a suitable wife. Eventually, he was successful. 
1871, Charles married Rosamond Warren, who was a descendant of Harvard Medical School founder John Warren. This Tuesday, December 12th, is actually their anniversary. Soon, they had three children, Mary Ethel, Little Rosamond, and Charles Jr. As they grew up, both daughters married and moved into their own grand homes in the Back Bay. Charles Jr. went to school in New Hampshire, then the MIT School of Architecture for a few months before withdrawing. He spent several years traveling around Europe, writing books and poetry. Under the pseudonym Richard Sudbury, he published a text on the royal chateau of rural France called Two Gentlemen of Touraine. It would become the standard text on the topic for years to come. The rest of his books are more frivolous, and some readers have made inference from his poetry. For example, The Wounded Eros is a series of sonnets describing love lost and love found, but never mentions a woman. When asked what that might say about his sexual orientation, museum curator Wendy Swanton says, He was a very eccentric, lifelong bachelor, a poet and an author. We have no proof or documentation that he was gay or not. In a way, I feel we should respect his privacy and let others draw their own conclusions as they wish. Without prying too much into his personal life, the lifelong bachelor Charles Jr. moved back into the house at 137 Beacon with Rosamond after Charles Sr.'s death in 1916. He began cultivating a persona as the ultimate Boston Brahmin, a throwback to an earlier era. A later profile in the Boston Herald described him as a proper Bostonian whose Victorian elegance puts modern manners to shame, and a small man with a nimble, if sometimes cantankerous, physique. He strolls around with a sort of swagger stick with a silver tip, out of deference to the fact that gold would be too vulgar. He affected an English accent and was always quick to mention his ties to the elites of Boston, London, and Paris. In 1934, Rosamond also passed away. By this time, museum guide Katie Shinnebeck says Charles Jr. was dedicated to keeping everything exactly as she had left it, and to preserving, in his manner and dress, the lifestyle of his parents. In a way, he was the world's first hipster self-consciously adopting the style and mannerisms of a bygone era. As the Great Depression raged, many of his neighbors moved out to the growing Boston suburbs, and the Back Bay entered a period of decline. The grand homes were broken up as rooming houses or apartments, sold to local institutions, or simply boarded up and abandoned. In 1950, the Herald would say that Charles Jr. deplores the foibles of the age, an age in which he sees the heights of aristocracy being leveled into planes where all men are considered alike. While he often gets cross about all this, he can laugh at it too. By the mid-1930s, Charles Gibson Jr. had already made up his mind that the house would become a museum upon his death. An article in Harvard Magazine said, Within a few years, he was living in only a portion of the house. The other rooms were already roped off awaiting display. Visitors were treated to martinis and stale bread in the stairway because he didn't want people sitting on the furniture. He also wrote notes and tagged furniture, artwork, and personal items for future stewards, obviously concerned that the world was leaving him behind. Charles Jr. maintained his eccentric ways right up until the end. 
Into the 1950s, he kept up a habit of walking to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel every night, where he would take his dinner in a full tuxedo and tails, top hat, and a raccoon coat in cold weather. His neighbors would call him Mr. Boston. Before he died in 1954, he wrote his own obituary, in which he described himself as a poet and horticulturist who delighted in being designated as a proper Bostonian. And he described his home as a period museum of the years from the Victorian era until today. He had also set up Gibson Society, which was established to maintain the house in perpetuity. It opened as a museum in 1957. We visited in February of 2016, and the house seems ready for Rosamond to walk through the door at any moment. Everything from the books and papers on the desks to the signed notes from Winston Churchill and Queen Elizabeth II to the place settings is undisturbed from the last time Charles Jr. left it. When we were there, we got a special upstairs-downstairs tour that focused on the lives and work of the household servants that supported the Gibson house and every fashionable home in Victorian Boston. Keep that in mind when we come to this week's main story, as one of the central characters was a maid and housekeeper in a similar home in the same time period. If you're interested in visiting, we'll have a link to more information in the show notes this week. To learn more about the 1787 Thanksgiving riot at Harvard, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 107. We'll have links to Pitt Clark's Harvard Diary, to all the Adams Family correspondence that we quoted from, and a link to the minutes of the Harvard administration meeting where the student's punishment was determined. Big thanks this week go to Sarah Giorgini, who's the series editor of the Adams Papers at the Mass Historical Society. After I stumbled across that footnote referencing the Thanksgiving riot, she was able to point me to many more references in the Adams Papers that we could use. Thanks also to the folks at the Harvard Archives for finding the minutes for us. And check the show notes for links to all of this week's featured historic sites and our upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about the Quaker martyr, Mary Dyer.